want to grab a Bible and join me, we are this morning in Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. We will finish this morning the Acts story that we started back in February of last year. The journey finally comes to an end this morning. It's like you know when you watch a good movie and you don't want the movie to end, or you're reading a good book and you just really don't want it to end. But then it does end, and that's kind of where we are today. So it's with sadness that we open back to the Acts story this morning to look at the final passage in the Acts story. Next week we'll be moving on. Like we said last week, we're going to spend just a little bit of time looking at a topic instead of going to another book right away. We're going to look at the topic of the afterlife. If you were here this last week and you heard us talk about this, we're going to look at the topic of what comes after this life, what is a biblical understanding of, first of all, death, what's a biblical understanding of hell, of the resurrection, and of course, heaven. So we'll spend probably a couple months just sort of looking at those topics, but that'll begin next week. Today, we're going to finish up the Acts story in chapter 28. I think in a pew Bible, it's probably 936 or 937. We'd stopped last week with verse 16, and that's where we'll pick up today. We remember Paul has now weathered this storm, this two-week hurricane in which he was lost at sea. The ship finally crashed against the rocks. Paul and all of the other sailors on board were saved onto this island of Malta. Paul was bitten by the poisonous snake, yet he didn't get sick and he didn't die. And so the natives thought that he was some sort of a god, which opened up this huge window, this gospel opportunity with the natives there on Malta. And then Paul proceeds on to Italy and proceeds on to Rome. And as he's approaching Rome, all of these Roman Christians come out, make this journey to meet him, and escort him into the city. Some of them journeyed 80 miles round trip to come and meet Paul and escort him into the city. And that was great encouragement to Paul. However, like we saw last time, the encouragement of people waxes and wanes. It comes and goes. It runs hot and it runs cold. The Roman Christians are hot for Paul now, but they will cool off, as we will see in the letter to the Philippians and their encouragement will grow cold. So Paul takes his encouragement, the ultimate encouragement for him, of course, is from Jesus Christ who never leaves him or forsakes him. So that brings us up until verse 16 of chapter 28. Beginning here with verse 16, we remember from last time when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier that guarded him. So we remember that this is gospel opportunity for Paul. Certainly this was an incredible inconvenience, probably an insult to Paul. Yet Paul views it as a gospel opportunity and having a Roman guard with him at all times means that he always has a captive audience for the gospel and he makes the use, makes best use of that. We looked last week at the letter to the Philippians and how we were reminded there of the incredible strides that the gospel made among the Roman imperial guard that was guarding for Paul, guarding over Paul. And so many of the Roman guards were converted to Christ. They all heard the gospel. Many of them believed and it made a huge impact. Now we move on this morning to the final section, beginning here in verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. So we remember that whole scene for two years there, Paul was in prison in Caesarea and he stood before both Festus and Felix and neither one of them could, could prove the guilt of Paul. And so his guilt being unproven, they couldn't really do anything with him. Festus just 
or Felix just left him in prison there for two weeks, but yet his guilt was unproven. And we remember the testimony of Agrippa. Agrippa said that this man has done nothing wrong. We could set him free had he not appealed to Caesar, which is what Paul mentions in the next verse. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge, though I had had no charge to bring against my people. So he appeals to Caesar, and so to Caesar he must go. Verse 20, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So it is the hope of Israel is obviously the Messiah, and so it's because that Paul believes that Jesus is the Messiah, and he preaches that Jesus is the Messiah, because of the hope of Israel, I wear this chain. Now verse 21, And when they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. So the Jewish leaders say, We really don't know anything about you, Paul, because nobody here has told us any evil or any wrongdoing about you. Paul's accusers have apparently not made it to Rome. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise to us because we remember just how treacherous the journey was for Paul himself to go from Caesarea to Rome. He nearly lost his life on the journey. So it would be no surprise that Paul's accusers have not yet arrived in Rome or perhaps they're not even going to come because they've had no success for two years in Caesarea under two different Roman emperors, they, they or two different Roman rulers rather, governors. They were unable to prove Paul's guilt and so they may just assume that we didn't have any luck there. We couldn't prove his guilt there. There's nothing different now, so we probably won't be able to prove his guilt before the emperor. Besides, Rome is a long ways away and it's a difficult and expensive journey, so maybe his accusers aren't even going to come to Rome. We don't know. But in whatever case, the Jewish leaders have not heard evil specifically against Paul. But now verse 22, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So, here Paul is now in Rome, and notice the first thing that he does is he calls the Roman, I mean, sorry, the, the Roman Jewish leaders together, and he wants to speak with them first. Now, this is Paul's tactic wherever he goes. Remember, Paul is proclaiming salvation of the Jewish Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah to the Jews, and so now he proclaims salvation to the Gentiles, but it is the Jewish Messiah that brings this salvation. So Paul's tactic, everywhere he goes, is to go to the Jews first. If there is a synagogue in the city that he goes to, then that's where he begins. Even where there is not a synagogue, like in Philippi, he finds where the Jewish ladies are meeting down by the river, and he begins with them. And once they reject the Gospel, then he goes to the Gentiles. The same thing is what he does here in Rome. He begins with the Jewish leaders in Rome. And he comes before these Jewish leaders to tell them about the, the Messiah, the salvation that He proclaims, they say, we know nothing about this except, verse, again, verse 22, we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know, not, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So, the picture here in Rome is this. The Jewish leaders in Rome know nothing about this new way, this Messiah that's Jesus. They know nothing about that except from those who are opposed to it. The only thing they know about Christianity is what they know from non-Christians, from those who aren't, from those who are opposed to Christianity. And so therefore, their view, their understanding of Christianity is a perverted one because 
you cannot understand a faith if everything you know about that faith comes from those who are opposed to it. The only way you can really understand what a belief system is about and what people who follow a belief system are, are about is to, is to get the information from them. If you want to understand Mormonism, then you need to talk to a Mormon. If you want to understand how Catholics think, you need to talk to a Catholic. Because if all of your information from, about a, a belief system comes from those who are opposed to that belief system, then chances are your view of that belief system will be very skewed and perverted and distorted. It's the way it is with these Jewish leaders. All they know about Christianity comes from the enemies of Christianity. And so therefore, not knowing a Christian, there's no way that they can really understand this faith. I remember when I was in college, I had uh, two really good friends, we became good friends, with two Hindus that were sweetmates of mine for two years. And we became really good friends through those two years. And before that time, I had never known a Hindu person, and so I, I really didn't understand what that was about. I could only really understand that once I got to know one of them. The same thing is true with these Jewish leaders. In order for them to understand what following Christ is about, they need to hear it from one who follows Christ. Which is the same thing we've seen through the story of Acts. In order for the Ethiopian eunuch to be converted, he had to hear the Gospel from someone who had been converted. Which is why the Holy Spirit came and, and transports Philip over to the Gaza Strip. In order for Cornelius to be converted, Cornelius had to hear the Gospel from someone who had been converted. So that's why Peter had to go to Cornelius. And the same thing is true with these Jewish leaders. In order for them to gain an accurate picture of following Christ, they must hear about it from someone who does follow Christ. And they understand that much. They say the only thing we know about this is from people who are opposed to it. So we're interested in hearing your views. You know, the interesting thing about this whole thing is, first of all, there were Christians in Rome. And so we must ask ourselves the question, why, why did they not, had they not heard something about this new faith, this new Messiah? Because we know that there was a church in Rome three years ago, Paul wrote a letter to them that we know of as the book of Romans. And we know that there's Christians there because on his way to Rome, Christians came out to meet Paul and escort him into the city. So we know that there are Christians in Rome, yet the Jewish leaders have heard nothing of this Gospel. Which kind of makes sense to us because we know that the Roman church was made up of mostly Gentile believers. And it would make a lot of sense to us to understand that the Jewish leaders of Rome are not very likely to listen to a Gentile when a Gentile starts speaking to them about their Messiah. So that kind of makes sense to us, but at the same time, it is sort of a mark against the Roman church that these Jewish leaders here would profess that so we know nothing about this way of faith that, that you follow. So we're interested in hearing this. So that's one thing that we make note of. But the other thing that I want to draw attention to is how these non-believing Jews know nothing about Christianity because they don't know any Christians. And I want to draw attention to the fact that the same thing is true today. Do you know that the vast majority of non-believers know nothing about our faith because they don't know a person of our faith? The vast majority of non-Christians do not even know a Christian. That's speaking worldwide, but the same thing is even true right here at home, right where we live. I was just reading this past week, I was just reading an article, there was a recent article that came out in Christianity Today just this past August. And in this article, it was addressing this very subject of how many 
non-Christians have relationships with a Christian. And this article had done a survey among North American uh, residents, North American people, Canada and, North, and uh, Canada and the U.S. And it had found that 20% of non-believers say they don't even know a Christian. Now that statistic is bad enough. One out of five non-Christians do not even have a relationship with a Christian. Don't even know a Christian. It's bad enough when one out of five don't know a Christian. However, the more I looked at this survey, the more revealing it became to me. Because this survey actually broke it down into people groups. And it broke out Muslims and Buddhists and uh, atheists and Mormons and all different types of people groups. And it, and it had statistics for how many Christians people in those people groups say, or how many people in those people groups say that they know a Christian. But one of the people groups and one of the large segments of, of non-Christians in the survey was former Christians. In other words, those who claim to have been a Christian at one time but now are not a Christ follower. They were included in the survey. They were part of this group of non-Christians that were surveyed to say, do you know any Christians? Now, think about this for a moment. If you are a what you would call a former Christian, you used to believe in Christ or used to follow Christ, now you don't, right? That in itself is problematic. But if you include yourself in that people group, how likely is it that you know somebody that's a Christian? Almost assured, right? If you are a former Christian, then you almost certainly know somebody that is a Christian. So that people group, which was a large swath of people in the survey, was actually skewing the results quite badly. So if we took that people group out, if we took out the people that said that we used to be a Christian, but we're not now, and we only looked at non-believers who had never said that they were a Christian, the statistic goes up to 60%. Six out of ten non-believers right here say that they don't even know one Christian. Folks, I don't know of a sadder statistic I could give you this morning that six out of ten non-believers right here do not have a relationship with any Christian. Which means, by default, that they cannot have a proper understanding of the Messiah that is Christ and what it means to follow Him. That all they know about our faith is what is told them from those who don't follow our faith or are enemies of our faith. They cannot possibly have an understanding of following Christ. How many people have a relationship with a practicing Muslim? I know my wife does. And uh, Mike, you're in the back. So very few of us have relationships with practicing Muslims. But, you, but I think that you could, you could say, without a doubt, if you do not know a practicing Muslim, do you really understand Islam? No. And the same thing is true for Christianity. Unless you know a genuine Christ follower, how can you be expected to know what it means to follow Christ? Which is why Philip had to be taken to the Ethiopian eunuch. Which is why Peter had to be taken to Cornelius. Which is why these Jewish leaders in Rome say, we know nothing about this because we don't know any of you. Six out of ten. Folks, that is a sad, sad statistic. Because what that tells us is that God is bringing the nations to us we have become the world's largest melting pot. Every major ethnic group of people is here in the United States in large numbers. There are large pockets of, po of populations of people of representing 
Every major ethnic group of people, they are here. God has brought the nations to us. And we're too busy wishing they would go away to get to know them. We're too busy lamenting the fact that they're here to build a relationship with them. We're too busy being annoyed by their crazy accents in order to build a relationship with them. And folks, how else are they going to find Christ? God is bringing the nations to us from places where they do not have access to Scripture, where the Gospel is not proclaimed. We don't even have to send missionaries to these people. God's brought them to us. And I promise you that in your interactions, you know somebody of another ethnic group that comes from a place where Christianity is not predominant. And I encourage you, I urge you to step out of your comfort zone, love that person, build a relationship with them so that they can see what authentic Christ following looks like. The Jews don't, but they are interested to know. They say, we would like to know. We desire to hear from you what your views are because we don't know what they are. All we know is everywhere, everybody we talk to speaks against this. Now verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. So they bring, they come back and bring their friends. From morning till evening, he expounded to them. Now, morning to evening, Paul preaches all day, morning to evening. You think you got it bad when you get out of 12-15? Well, count yourself fortunate that the Apostle Paul is not your pastor because he preaches from morning to evening. And when he has an evening service, remember in Troas, when he has an evening service, he goes all night until Eutychus falls out the window. So he preaches from morning to evening. He expounded to them. Now that probably wouldn't have been just a monologue. It would have been a dialogue. They would have been discussing back and forth. Paul is talking here with trained rabbis. He himself is a trained rabbi. And so they're discussing Jesus as the Messiah. They're turning to the Scriptures. And Paul is expounding to them. The next verse here, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. That reminds us that, folks, we don't need our New Testaments to know that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. Paul expounded to them using only the law and the prophets to show them that Jesus was the Messiah. It's the same thing he did back in Thessalonica in your sermon notes. Back in Acts chapter 17, when he was in Thessalonica, we read that as it was his custom, he went on three Sabbath days and reasoned with the Jews from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So Paul uses the Scriptures to prove to the Thessalonian Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Now the only Scriptures Paul had to use were the Old Testament. Because at this point, Paul has written some of his letters, James has written his epistle, but the Gospels are still several years away. There, there are no, Paul can't say, open up to the Gospel of Matthew, let me show you how Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises. The only thing he has is the Old Testament Scriptures. And he proves from the Old Testament Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Same thing Jesus does in Luke 24 when he's on the road to Emmaus. He opens their mind to understand from the law and from the prophets that they were about Him. The Old Testament points to Jesus, foreshadows Jesus, tells us of our need for Jesus, shows us how to expect the Messiah that is to come. And so so Paul proves to them speaks to them from the Old Testament Scriptures, reasons with them, expounds with them. Now verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. So a couple things that we notice here is that, first of all, the Gospel that Paul is speaking is the same Gospel that Peter spoke back in chapter 2. We're now 26 chapters later, several years, many years later, 
and we find that the Gospel is the same Gospel that Peter spoke back in chapter 2, but in the same way, the results are the same also. Back in chapter 2, some believed and some disbelieved. Now in chapter 28, some believe, others disbelieve, and we've seen the same thing throughout. Some believe and some disbelieve. Now verse 25, and agreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made this one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. So, Paul expounds all day long with them. Some of them believe, others don't believe, and others reject this. And after hearing the Gospel all day, Paul says to them, all right, God was right when He said through the prophet Isaiah that seeing you'll see, you won't see, hearing you won't hear, because you've closed your eyes, you've closed your heart, and so therefore the Gospel goes now to the Gentiles. That, by the way, is the fourth time that Paul's done this. The fourth time that Paul has gone and reasoned with the Jews, and the Jews have rejected it, and Paul has said, alright, the Gospel goes to the Gentiles now. He did it first of all back in chapter 13 at Antioch, Pisidia. He did it again in chapter 18 at Corinth. He did it again in chapter 19 at Ephesus. And now he does it again in chapter 28 in Rome. He goes to the Jews first. The Jews reject it by and large. And then he says, alright, now this Gospel is now going to the, to the uh, Gentiles. And the Scripture that he quotes from Isaiah 6, verse 9 and 10, is a very harsh one. Jesus, in fact, quoted this Scripture in Mark 4. You may remember when uh, everybody was having trouble struggling with the fact that Jesus was teaching in parables and so many people didn't understand what He was saying. Jesus went to this Scripture and said, seeing you won't see and hearing you won't hear because your ears are closed. If your ears weren't closed, then you would hear and you would turn and repent and you'd be saved. So Jesus goes to the same Scripture. And it is a harsh Scripture. Because it speaks of the coming wrath for those who do not hear and those who will not see. And it speaks of the fact that they are closed to the Gospel. And what it really speaks of is the wrath of God. Because you see, the wrath of God is not so much about hellfire and brimstone falling out of the sky. The wrath of God has much more to do with God turning us over to the sin that we desire. That's really what the wrath of God is all about. is God giving us over to the sin that we really desire. And that's what this Scripture is about. You didn't want to hear about the Messiah? You won't hear about the Messiah. You didn't want to believe in this Messiah. And so therefore, yes, now you won't believe. It's God turning them over in His wrath, turning them over to the sin that they want. They don't want to believe in this Messiah. They don't want to hear about this Messiah. And God gives them over to that. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 1, by the way. How the wrath of God is, is so much about turning us over to the sin that we really want. Paul talks about men burning in their passion for other men and women burning in their passions for other women and how God gives them over to the passions of their flesh. And he goes on to talk about their minds and how they wanted to worship the creation rather than the Creator. And they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Therefore, God gives them over to a debased mind. You see, God is giving them over to the sin that they really desire in their hearts. These Jews who reject the Gospel, they really don't want to believe in this Messiah. As Paul is expounding with them and proving to them from the Scriptures that Jesus was the promised Messiah, 
they are finding every reason they can to disbelieve because we don't want to believe that. And so in His wrath, God turns them over to exactly what they want. So Paul proclaims this and then the Jews go out. And then we come to verse 30. Verse 30 and verse 31, the final two verses in the story of Acts. And this is the conclusion of the whole book. In fact, as you're probably aware, Acts is part two of Luke's two-volume work. Luke was part one, Acts is part two. And so these two verses are the conclusion for all of that, for Luke and Acts. And let's look at how Luke concludes this huge story, this grand story of the birth and the growth of the church and the spread of the Gospel. Verse 30, He lived there, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And he's done. Strange way to end it, huh? I mean, there's so many questions left unanswered. What happened to Paul? What happened with Nero? Did Paul ever get to proclaim the Gospel to Nero? How did Nero react? Was Paul released? Did Paul ever go on those other missionary journeys? Did he ever make it to Spain? So many questions left unanswered. And Luke just sort of leaves us hanging, doesn't he? Kind of like his hand got tired of writing. and He just said, that's all I can write. But you see, Luke is a masterful storyteller, isn't he? I mean, he's told, he has told us a story through the Acts story that was just engrossing, wasn't it? Who could help but become engrossed in the, in the storm at the sea or the sons of Sceva or, or Simon and the magician? All these wonderful stories. Luke is a wonderful storyteller. So why would such a good storyteller leave us at a point like that with apparently so many things not resolved? I think that there's probably two reasons why Luke ends the story this way. I just want to mention one of them now. I'll mention another one a little bit later. I think Luke wants to end the story this way because he wants to keep the focus in the proper place. You see, Luke has told us a story about some really incredible events and some really interesting people. Paul. Paul in the storm. Paul on Malta. Paul in Lystra. Paul in Damascus. Peter. Peter being released from prison. Stephen. Philip. Paul, Luke has told us about all of these incredible people, these incredible events, and these incredible stories. So much so that we're in danger of the characters overshadowing the point. We're in danger of becoming so interested in Paul and what happens to Paul that we miss the point. And so Luke is going to end it this way to remind us of the point. The point is not Paul. The point is the Gospel. The point is the birth of the church and the spread of the Gospel. And these two verses serve as perfect summaries, perfect conclusions for Luke's theme in this. This is, a, this is a summary statement, a concluding statement for the birth of the church and the growth of the Gospel. It's like a fulfillment, if you will, a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's now been fulfilled in verses 31, 30 and 31. The Gospel has been preached in Jerusalem. It's been preached in Judea, Samaria. And now it's been preached in Rome, which is metaphorically speaking the end of the earth, the end of the world. Rome was the center of everything in Paul's day. It was the center of civilization. And if the Gospel got to Rome, then metaphorically speaking, the Gospel had gone to the ends of the earth. And so, 
this wonderful concluding statement, the fulfillment of what Jesus spoke in chapter 1, verse 8. But in addition to that, there is so much teaching, I think, packed into these two verses. Teaching that shows us in some very clear ways some principles about evangelism and about the spread of the Gospel. If we just look at these two verses rather closely, I think that we'll see that there's much teaching in here for us to gain from. So let's look at verse 30 and 31 closely and see what Luke has for us here. First of all, we notice a couple of rather obvious things. First of all, it says he lived there two whole years at his own expense. Is that fair? Is that fair? I mean, Paul is innocent. We know that. He's been shown and proven to be innocent. Is it even fair that he's imprisoned to begin with? Much less that he has to pay for his own prison accommodation. I would say that's rather unfair. But you see, the Gospel is advanced on the back of unfairness. The Gospel is advanced on the back of unfairness. One thing that I often lament when I listen to Christians and I engage other Christians, I often lament the fact that so many Christians are wrapped up in fairness. In the world treating them fairly, in our culture treating us fairly, in the laws of this country treating us fairly. And I want to say, yeah, I get that. I understand what you're saying. But that is not how the Gospel is advanced. It is not advanced through fairness. It is advanced more often than not through unfairness. That's how it began, folks. Philippians 2, verse 5-11 through tells us of the greatest unfairness ever experienced. When God Himself, Jesus who was in the form of God, came as a creature, submitting Himself as our servant, humbling Himself to the point of death on a cross to die for the very ones who were putting Him there. That is the definition of unfairness. And we've seen throughout the story of the Acts that when God's people are treated unfairly and we react with love, that's how the Gospel is advanced. That's how people's hearts are softened. When we are treated like our Messiah was treated, and we return love instead of hatredness, or instead of hatred, hatredness. When we return love instead of hatred, when we return prayer for them instead of mocking them or standing up for our rights, when we accept that in the love of Christ, that is how hearts are open to the gospel. Was it fair for Paul to be imprisoned at his own expense? Absolutely not. But Paul treated it as a way to advance the gospel. So here he is in Rome. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. Now there's another thing that sort of goes without saying. Paul welcomed all who came to him. Now what does it mean that Paul welcomed all who came to him? What sort of people does that mean that Paul was welcoming when he was here in Rome for two years preaching the Gospel to anyone that he could get to come and listen? One thing that we sometimes, I think, lose sight of in our culture. Immorality is so prevalent around us. Our culture has, has really gone down a dark road in terms of not only accepting, but celebrating homosexuality. One thing that we lose sight of is, is sometimes we start to think we're the only people who's ever done this. We start to think we're the most sinful people that have ever, have ever lived. 
And I see where that comes from. I see where that thinking comes from because you look around and there's so much sin around us. But you know what, folks? We are not the first people to do this. We are not the first people to be this sinful. We are not even the first people to accept and condone and celebrate open homosexuality. You know, the ancient Greek culture and the ancient Roman culture both accepted and celebrated homosexuality. There were several Roman emperors who were openly homosexual. We are not the first people to be in this position. And so as Paul accepts all who will come to him, he's accepting those that, to you and I, would look like the last people that would be interested in hearing about Jesus. He's accepting those that would be very much distasteful for many of us. He accepts all who will come, all who will come and listen. I'm here to proclaim the Gospel to you. So those, those kind of go without saying. But then let's look closely at verse 31. In your sermon notes, there's four, four other things that I've noted here that I think these two verses in particular show us. Again, verse 31. He proclaimed all to all who came to Him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. First thing I see in verse 31 is as you see in your sermon notes here, people under God's sovereignty have confidence to proclaim the gospel knowing God's desired results will be unhindered. That's a long sentence, but basically it says this. When we recognize that God is sovereign over the proclamation of His gospel, when we recognize that the gospel will not be hindered, then that gives us tremendous boldness to proclaim that gospel. That's exactly what Luke says. Teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Folks, I don't know of anything that could be more obvious through the story of Acts. We've all been here now through 28 chapters, and I think we can all recognize, I don't think there's anything more obvious in the story of Acts than the fact that God is sovereign over His Gospel. God is sovereign over the proclamation of His Word, and it will not be hindered. It will go out as He has declared that it will. And God is sovereign over His Gospel, His message. And it will not be hindered. That does not mean that the Gospel speaker will not be hindered, but it does mean that the Gospel message will not be hindered. I don't know of anything that's plainer in the Acts story than that. Just look at all of the things that the sovereignty of God has overcome in order for the Gospel to be proclaimed. The persecutions of chapter 4, persecution of chapter 8, the stoning of Stephen, the imprisonment and beatings of Peter and John. The sovereignty of God overcame all of those things. The magician Simon who would, who would cast a spell on them, the seven sons of Sceva, the mob violence over and over again, the mob violence, the stoning of Paul at Lystra, storms at sea, poisonous snakes, even the language barrier. In chapter 2, the Gospel even overcomes the language barrier so that people who don't even speak the same language hear the Gospel spoken in their native tongue. Is anything more obvious in the Acts story than God is sovereign over the proclamation of His Gospel? And His Gospel will not be hindered. Again, it's not the same thing as saying the Gospel speaker will not be hindered, but it is to say that the Gospel message will not be hindered. Folks, 
That should give you incredible boldness. That should give you incredible confidence. Because what that says to you, Christian, is that if your life is invested in the Gospel, then you cannot fail. Because the Gospel cannot fail. Now, if your life is invested in other things, that's a different story. But if your life is invested in the Gospel, then you should have the greatest confidence on the planet because a sovereign God is in charge of His Gospel message and He has declared it will not be hindered, it will be spoken. Are you investing your life in the Gospel message? There's not a lot of safe bets in our world. That's one of them. That may be the only one. Investing your life in the Gospel message guarantees success because the Gospel message will not be hindered. Sometimes I, sometimes I really am troubled by the fact that so many Christians, it's, so often it's like we just live with this defeated attitude. Again, the world around us is as immoral as it could be. And it didn't just get that way. And everywhere you look, you see sin everywhere. And so I do get where that comes from. I do get the fact that yes, it can be depressing to see so many people scorning God and thumbing their nose at eternity. But the Christian, the Christ follower, is never justified in having a defeated attitude. Paul tells the Romans in Romans 8 verse 37 that in Christ we are more than conquerors. Like we're just saying, victory in Jesus. We are more than conquerors if our life is invested in the Gospel. It cannot fail. It cannot be hindered. So that's the first thing that we see. People under the sovereignty of God recognize God is sovereign over His Gospel. If we invest our life in His Gospel, then we will live with boldness and we will speak it with boldness because we know it will not be hindered. Number two, the message of the Gospel is a message primarily about the Kingdom of God. Look at what Luke says. Verse 31, proclaiming the Kingdom of of God. It's the second time he's used that phrase in this passage. The kingdom of God. Now what does the kingdom of God mean? The kingdom of God means a lot of things. More things than we want to take the time to talk about right now. But in a really compacted nutshell, at its most basic form, the most simplistic way that we could put it, the kingdom of God is about something much bigger than you. The kingdom of God is about something much larger than you. And Paul is proclaiming a Gospel message that's much bigger than people. Much bigger than the ones who hear it. You see, the mistake that we often make is we make the Gospel message about you. And we make the Gospel message about how God can fix your life and how Jesus can fix your marriage and how He can fix this problem in your life. Does Jesus fix broken lives? Absolutely. Does Jesus fix broken marriages? You bet He does. But that is not the primary message of the Gospel. The primary message of the Gospel is about the Kingdom of God. And the Kingdom of God is bigger than any person. It's bigger than any marital problem. It's bigger than any depression. It's bigger than anything you face in your life. The Kingdom of God is about light defeating darkness. It's about God sacrificing Himself to redeem His enemies and then using His enemies to defeat His archenemy. The kingdom of God is about the advancement of good over evil. It's about those things that are much grander and much bigger than any of us. Yes, Jesus fixes our lives. 
But that is not the primary message of the Gospel. If we make the primary message of the Gospel what Jesus can do for you, then that's not a biblical Gospel message. Because the Gospel is about the Kingdom of God. Number three, proclaiming the Gospel is a matter of both preaching and teaching. Look again in verse 31. Proclaiming or preaching. Preaching the Kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Gospel proclamation, the Gospel message, is inherently both preaching and teaching. Now you say, well, what's the difference? What is the difference between preaching and teaching? Some people would answer that question by saying, well, the difference between preaching and, cre- and preaching. preaching and teaching, the difference between preaching and teaching is the volume level of the speaker. Right? And that's not exactly the case. The difference between preaching and teaching has to do with what is being challenged. Preaching challenges the will. Teaching challenges the mind. Preaching challenges the will. Teaching challenges the mind. Therefore, the Gospel message must include both. In order for the Gospel to bring salvation to us, there must be a change of our will We must abandon our self-will, our desire to to worship and serve ourself, and our will must be changed. So, the Gospel message must challenge the will, but it also must challenge the mind. Because salvation only comes by faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. How can you believe in something you don't know? Can, Can you believe in something you don't know? How can you repent of something that you don't know? The Gospel message, therefore, must challenge both the will and the mind. And that's all over the New Testament, folks. Romans 12.2 Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, there's the will, by the renewal of your mind. Will and mind. And so any Gospel message that only challenges the will is not a biblical Gospel message. Any Gospel message that only challenges the mind is academic and doesn't represent a biblical Gospel message. So Paul proclaims both preaching and teaching. And then lastly, number four, the urgency of the message is impossible to miss. If you have missed the urgency of the Gospel message, then you've been asleep through the entire story of the Acts. Because that too is just as obvious as the nose on your face. Peter and John were willing to go to prison and suffer beatings and imprisonment for the sake of the message. Paul was willing to endure storms on the high seas being lost For two weeks at sea, he was willing to endure mob violence. He was willing to go and stand before the emperor Nero for the gospel message. Stephen was willing to be stoned for the gospel message. We cannot possibly miss the urgency of the message of the gospel. Six out of ten people who live among us don't know a Christian. One thing that says to me is that a great many of us have missed the urgency of the Gospel message. Because you know what? If we really got the fact that this is the most pressing and urgent thing of our lives, then that statistic of 6 out of 10 would go to 1 out of 10. And we would go out of our way make relationships with people who don't know Christ 
and love them into the family of God. We would swallow our pride. We would get over our differences. If we realized that the Gospel message was the most urgent thing on this planet, that every minute people are dying outside of Christ, next week we will hear a message about death and then the resurrection and then we'll hear a message about hell. Just a couple of days ago, two... 41-year-old and a 40-year-old right up the road here stepped into eternity. I don't, know which, I don't know which side of Christ they're on. But for them, it's eternally over. Too late. I pray that they were in Christ. But every day, that happens all around us. If we really realized the urgency of this message, it would dominate our lives. And we would preach boldly, just as, just as Paul did. We would recognize God is sovereign over this. And we would preach with great, great boldness. So that's the conclusion of the Acts story. It brings us to the end of the book. But again, Luke does seem to end it in an awkward place. So many questions unanswered. Don't you want to know what happened with Nero? Don't you want to know? Was Paul released? What, how did all this work out? I think the other reason that Luke leaves it like this is because the story's not over. This is the story of God's church and the spread of the gospel. And that story continues and it will continue until we are raised to see Him face to face.